we want to take some time just now to read the Bible together. So we're going to read from Revelation chapter 14. It's on page 1243 in the Bible in the pew. We're going to read all of Revelation chapter 14 and into chapter 15 as well. And as we read, let's remember this is the Word of God, and so we can trust it completely. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters, and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and his image, or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud. Seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire, came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, 
Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth and gathered its grapes and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the, last, with the seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages, who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name. For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Amen. Those of us who are left can turn to Revelation 14 to page Uh, One, two, four, three, as we were looking at a moment ago, we're going to look all being well, Revelation 14 and into first four verses of 15. Uh, Let me begin with an illustration that, uh, funny enough, I always associate with Andrew Faulkner. Uh, It's really Tim Keller's illustration, but whenever uh, Andrew was here, uh, he was the first one I heard use it. He was obviously a few pages ahead of me in whatever book we were reading at the time, and uh, he got there first. And, and uh, the illustration is this. We imagine two workers, and they, they're, they're both doing the same job. <clears throat> uh, it's a, a sort of a mundane job in, a, in an assembly line, perhaps. It's, uh, it's dirty, and it's difficult, and it's really pretty tedious. And you tell the first man that he has to work for a year. He will get the absolute minimum wage possible with no bonuses. And it, it's very possible that that man will hate his job. He will turn up because he has to be there, but there'll be no joy in it because uh, the work is hard and the reward is, is small. But then, then you have a second man. You give him the very same job to do. It's dirty and difficult and, and tedious, and he gets the same small wage, but you tell him that at, at the end of the year, not immediately, but at the end of the year, he will be given a tremendous bonus, a tremendous reward, millions of pounds. And it's absolutely guaranteed. In fact, you, you show it to him. It's, it's, it's being held for him. And then you ask, well, how will that man treat his job? And the likelihood is that, that he will go to work with a spring in his step. He, he will whistle as he does whatever mundane work he has to do. He, his experience of the mundane and indeed the difficult will be transformed by the prospect of what uh, awaits him. His future hope will transform his present. And and you can see how that that illustration is is meant to apply to us as we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we have, if we're Christians here tonight, we have, you have, a tremendous inheritance kept in heaven for you, an amazing future. And, and the knowledge of that future hope should really change your, 
your day-to-day, no matter how mundane it might be or how difficult it might be at times. And that's part of what I hope we're finding as we look at Revelation. On the one hand, it tells us what's going on behind the scenes in this world now, which helps us understand why following Jesus can be difficult, why there's opposition, why in some places there's outright persecution. But it also tells us of, of what God has in store, what, what, what will happen, and the tremendous future that awaits all of us who are God's people. And we're going to see something of that tonight. And, and hopefully, our prayer is that it will change our, our, our day-to-day walk as, as, we, as we look ahead to see the prize that, that Christ has purchased for us. We've been spending these last few evenings looking at these really key visions, I think, in the middle of this book of Revelation. And we've been in chapter 12, chapter 13, now 14, and into 15 a little bit. They're really key in helping us understand what's going on in our world, why our world is the way it is. And it was actually my hearing someone speak on some of these central themes and central chapters that really drew me to, to look at this book uh, in the evenings here. And we, we see in chapter 12 that we're in a battle. We understand that we're in a battle. Re- the rebellious evil one uh, loathes the Lord Jesus Christ, has sought to destroy him, but cannot get to him as it were. And so in his fury, Satan turns on those who are precious to Jesus, us, the, the church. He wants to destroy the church. He wants to drag us down. And then chapter 13, it tells us in, in very broad principles how he does this. He, he doesn't often come at us directly, but he utilizes two particular methods, sometimes methods that work closely together. These two beasts that we read off in chapter 13, and they, they form together with the dragon, this sort of evil trinity, this anti-trinity. And the beasts are not literal, but they are figurative, as as so much in Revelation is, of course. And they seem, on the one hand, to refer to sort of political and and, and structural power, the the system of this world. And then on the other hand, uh, false ideologies and false religions, false thinking, everything that leaves God out of the picture, the true God out of the picture. And, and as I said, often these, these two approaches come together, a, a system with the false ideology. And, and this is one of the chief ways, according to Revelation, of how Satan wages war against the church. This is his way down through the ages and, and will be until Christ returns. And it has led the church to endure some dreadful suffering in different places around the world and and continues to do so. It leaves us feeling sometimes as aliens and strangers within this world. Uh, It's a a dreadful conglomeration of forces stacked against God's people. And and after reading chapters 12 and 13, we might wonder, how how on earth could could the church possibly survive in the face of this onslaught? But actually, chapters 14 and 15 have some great encouragements for us because it tells us what what lies ahead. Well, three simple titles 
to uh, help us navigate through the the next few verses. Uh, Here they are. Uh, God protects his people, he proclaims his truth, and he brings in his harvest. God protects his people, first of all, then. A couple of years ago, um, I had the opportunity to tour some of the Normandy beaches. I know some of you have done that. And uh, it's, it's a very powerful place to visit. Some of the stories that are associated with uh, places like Pegasus Bridge and, and uh, Pont de Hoc and Omaha Beach, Beach and so on are really incredible. But I, I remember towards the end of my time there uh, coming across just a, a simple display board outside a museum and it gave the total number of Allied casualties killed in Operation Overlord across that three-month battle for Normandy. Around 225,000, sorry, 225,000 casualties, many of whom were killed. And and that really struck me because I'd I'd heard so many sort of individual stories and stories that were tied up with particular battles and so on, but the overall picture had sort of escaped me. Well, we've been reading, if we've been reading chapters 12 and 13, we've been reading about the the fury of Satan and the ways that he oppresses God's people. Chapters uh, 13 verse 7 tells us that the beast is allowed to make war on the saints and conquer them. And the question sort of arises, well, well, what about the casualties? How many do we lose in this great battle? And chapter 14 gives us the answer. Then I looked, and there was before me the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So we're we're taken into heaven, heavenly court, in in, uh, chapter 14, and and we see the whole church gathered, 144,000. This is a a number that we've seen before back in chapter 7, verse 4. It's a number that refers to all of God's people, all down through history, all gathered together. And and the point is that it's the same number as it was back in chapter 7, verse 4. In other words, they're all there. Remember that war correspondent whose name escapes me as he counted the harriers off the deck in the Falklands conflict. I counted them all out and I counted them all back. Well, there's a sense in which it's exactly the same here. We counted them all out into this conflict and now we've counted them all back. So so Satan has has attacked God's people. He's waged war in the church. His fury has been poured out on the offspring of the woman. And and how many are lost? Well, not one. This number stands for the entire throng of God's people, and they're all present and correct. Maybe you think, well, you know, with all that sort of picture language and revelation, maybe that's pushing it a little bit to draw that sort of conclusion. Well, let's go to Jesus. Let's let's go to Jesus in John chapter 10. Really important verse, John chapter 10, verse 27 and following. Jesus says, my sheep listen to my voice, I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Or again, a few chapters earlier in John chapter 6, Jesus again speaking. Verse 37, all that the Father gives 
to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So you see, through all the oppositions and attacks and, and difficulties, God keeps his people. Not one of them will be lost. If, if you belong to Jesus tonight, then you will be here. You'll be there. You'll be one of this great number. And you might not feel that you're doing very well. It might have been a, a difficult week for you. You might have had more defeats than victories. But, but just look at how God describes his people from this heavenly perspective. Chapter 14, verse 4. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as first, first fruits to God and to the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. All sorts of images of faithfulness piled up to describe God's people. The, the description of defiling with women has caused some speculation, as you might imagine. And the Bible's picture of marriage, as we know, is really positive. But, but, but in chapter, in verse 8, for example, Babylon, which is a system opposed to God, Babylon is proclaimed as fallen, and it speaks of her making all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adultery. So, so often in Scripture, isn't it true, that to reject God and to embrace Satan's kingdom is pictured as sexual unfaithfulness, adultery. So, so to follow God is to be pure. That, that's, I think, the picture. And, and Revelation goes on then to describe these other ways in which those are people, those who are, are God's people, are people who follow Jesus. They are people who are blameless. They're people who are truthful. And you see, you might feel as if, oh, I'm just holding on. And, and you may indeed stumble in all sorts of ways. But ultimately, if, if God has worked in your heart and brought you to himself, you are one who will overcome. And you will sing his praise in heaven. And you notice that the song that you will sing is unique to God's people. You see, it says that here. It's in verse 3. No one else can sing it. Why is that? Because only the church, only Christians can sing about being rescued and redeemed. There's lots of praise going on in heaven, heavenly creatures and angels and so on. But the holy angels cannot sing personally of God's redemption. But if you're a Christian, you can, and you will. Do you know that the angels marvel at that? After describing our redemption in, 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 in his first letter, Peter says in 1 Peter 1 verse 12, even the angels long to look into these things. 
don't really like speculating about heaven, but maybe, but I will. Maybe, maybe you'll find yourself in heaven and you'll hear a sound and an angel will be beside you. And he will come in in wide-eyed wonder and he'll say, "Could could you tell me what's it like to be redeemed? God protects his church. Now, brothers and sisters, this is not to make us complacent or lazy or encourage us to compromise and say it doesn't matter. None of those things, none of those things. This is to help us rest in his greatness. God protects his church. Second thing here we see is that God <clears throat> proclaims his truth. This is the, the announcements of the three angels from verses 6 to 13. Uh, we, we see this new development in John's vision, a series of, of three angels, all with messages to proclaim, and, and different people have sort of called them different things. Perhaps the first one we can call a message of grace, because this first angel proclaims the eternal gospel. Uh, to all who live on the earth, to every nation and tribe and people and language. He said in a loud voice, verse 7, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. So it's a message of warning on the one hand. Judgment is coming. But it also contains an appeal. Fear God and give him glory. This is, this is a call for people to bow before the Lord. At this point, it it seems to be not too late. It's a call to make God your everything. He's the creator. Allegiance is owed by all, so, so acknowledge that. Be who you are, a subject of this great king. Then there's a message of doom. The second angel proclaims, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Now, Babylon will be explained more fully in subsequent chapters, but it's another picture of some of the uh, systems in, in rebellion against God. And, and for the first, pic- the first Christians, the first readers of this letter, it was a particular picture of Rome, and uh, as Rome was the, the, the satanically inspired oppressor of God's people at that time. And so this angel is proclaiming the, the, the downfall of everything that is set up against God. All, all that opposes him will fall. And finally, there's a message of, of warning. Verse 9, if anyone worships the beast and his image and he receives and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. Now now here's a, a dreadful warning for those who will side with the evil one against God. So a call to repent a proclamation of doom against all that sets itself up against God. And for those who take that side, a warning of dreadful judgment, everlasting punishment. And you notice it is, it is everlasting. There have been those within the church who have suggested that, that unbelievers will, 
will finally be somehow sort of extinguished. They'll just cease to be. You, you, sometimes it's referred to as annihilationism. But it's very hard to square that with what we see here, isn't it? The, the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. An eternity of restlessness. It's contrasted with the redeemed in verse 13 who will rest from their labor. Now, now this, is, this is just a dreadful picture, isn't it? And of course, it is a picture. It's picture language. But can we think that the reality will be any less awful than what is pictured here? One of the things that we want to think about is as we see these great pictures of salvation and judgment, what would change if if we really thought about this? If, If we really believed this, not just sort of in our heads, as it were, but, but really felt it, allowed this truth to shape our, our living. So, so, so grace is available to the nations. Doom is pronounced upon everything that opposes God. Judgment is proclaimed for all who reject God. These are the final announcements in, in this vision but, but they are also some of the headline themes of the church's message to the world all the way through the church period. Indeed, if you ask, how is the world to hear of these truths? Well, it's through the church, isn't it? It's through God's people, through you and me. Grace is available. All that stands against God is going to fall one day. And those who reject the Lord are going to be judged. We do the world a great disservice if we hide that message. And of course, the message is not just of an escape from such destiny. There's also the reward of the blessed spoken of here, underlined here. Blessed are those who die in the Lord. It implies that their lives have not been easy. It's hard, but they have endured. And what a future awaits them. So that's, that's the second thing. God proclaims his truth. And the last thing, just in, in a word or two, is that, is that God brings in his harvest. Now, we know that there are many pictures of the final harvest in the Bible. We, we think of them often at harvest time. So things like the parable of the wheat and the tares, for example. And here, Revelation describes for us this final harvest. John sees one like a son of man, you see in verse Uh, 14. And almost certainly this is Jesus. Some people have wondered at that because he is directed to begin the harvest by an angel. And you sort of would wonder, well, is is it really appropriate that that Jesus would take orders from an angel? But but it may be an image of the fact that Jesus is, is described as not knowing the day or the hour of when this final harvest will start. So he leaves the timing of that with the Father. Perhaps it's a picture of that. But If it is Jesus, then under his oversight and with other angels, this great harvest takes place. He himself harvests 
what looks like the believers. And so the harvest described in verses 14 and 16, 14 to 16, it seems to be a picture of a grain harvest. It, it, it's a picture, therefore, of, of God's people being gathered in, the good wheat in the parable of the wheat and the tares, the amazing, miraculous uh, uh, harvest of the, the parable of the sower. And the focus is going to return to them in chapter 15. But then the rest of the chapter describes a grape harvest, which is the gathering of the wicked, those who do not bow before the Lord. Another angel does this with his sharp sickle. And this relatively familiar picture, as it would have been in the ancient world, of of grapes being gathered in and carted into the the, the yard and and then the wine press being filled to the brim and then the, the people stepping on them and, and, and squeezing the grapes, trodden underfoot, so that the, the juice flows out. Well, this is, is now a picture of God's judgment of the wicked, the, the, the blood flowing for almost 200 miles, the depth of a horse's bridle. Again, a, a truly awful picture, which speaks about something truly awful. And perhaps we just need to pause here for a moment and say, This is what the Bible says will happen regularly, consistently. And and we know that that as we look back, God's promises and, and, and plans have always come to pass. And so this intention will also, evil will be punished. And when, as it is, evil is enmeshed in human beings, then it is, is punished in one of two ways. It is either in the amazing way that God is able to do this, disentangled from his people and placed upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ so that he pays for it. Or it is punished in those very same human beings. And you see, while Christ could carry the sins of countless numbers of his people and pay for them fully and finally because of who he is. The wicked are not able to do that. They are not able to atone for their sins. Their account will never be settled. And so there is no end to their payment. And again, we should ask, well, what would our our lives and our actions be like if, if we thought about this more, if we felt the weight of this as we ought, how would we pray for those around us? What urgency and seriousness would we speak to those around us with? And we've got to say, if, if we're here tonight and, and we are not yet trusting the Lord Jesus, this is where our, our path would lead us until we turn to Christ. It's a terrible and an inevitable harvest, and all of God's promises have come true, and this will also. Now, contrasting with the punishment of the wicked is the joy of the redeemed in chapter 15. It's just a preview, really. We're going to, John tells us a little bit about seeing these seven angels and so on, and, and they are sort of dominating the next number of chapters in the book. 
But as John mentions that, he then focuses our attention on the rescued people of God, those who had, in his description, overcome the beast. They'd not been taken in by its lies or succumbed to its pressures. And we find them gathered on the sea of glass. Remember last time we said that the, the sea was a picture of chaos in the ancient world. And, and from it, the, 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 the beast, uh, uh, one of the, the first beast emerges. And now the redeemed are standing on, on a sea of glass. It's the transparent floor before the, the throne of God. And, and, and they sing. And they sing the, the song of the Lamb. It's really, it's a song uh, to the Lamb, declaring his wonderful works. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. It's a song of, of Moses, too. It's described that way. Moses sang two songs, but it, it seems that it's the one in Exodus 15 that's in mind here, where he sings about the triumph of God after the Exodus and the defeat of the Egyptians. And, and here is what God has done. He has, just like the Exodus, he's delivered his people. They have triumphed over their enemies, all that was arranged against them. And the right response to what God does which will be the natural cry of your heart in glory, is praise. God, you are great. What you have done is incredible. God brings his harvest. Now we're really done, but, but I, I don't know what strikes you about these harvest verses, maybe you're struck by the awfulness of the imagery and the, or maybe the greatness of what lies ahead for God's people. <clears throat> but one of the, the, the things that really strikes me is the, is the great difference that there is between the, the righteous and the wicked. We don't always see that clearly, do we? Maybe you've been part of a conversation a bit like this, uh, you're, you're chatting to someone, maybe another Christian, and, and, and somebody's name emerges, and, you, and they say, oh, yeah, yeah, Johnny, yeah. Is, is Johnny a Christian, do you know? And they say, well, oh, I, I'm not really sure. I, I, I think he might be. I, I, he, he comes along now and again, and, and, and so on. But I, I'm, not, I'm not really sure. You've been part of a conversation like that. I, I think most of us maybe have. Because, because we don't know the heart, of course, and, and, and we don't know where the lines are drawn. But as we read this, we know that God knows where the lines are drawn. At the end of the Old Testament, Malachi looks forward to this day and he says, you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. That distinction is not always clear to us living in this world, a world of wheat and tares but it's clear in Revelation and it's clear to God. So brother and sister, don't think of your faith as just changing, thing, changing things a little for your life. Sometimes we think like that. It's a, it's a comfortable thing. It, it, it gives you something that others maybe don't have, but, but really there's not all that much difference between me and my neighbor. Holding on to Jesus Christ makes all the difference in the world and all the difference in the next world.
and all the difference forever. So imagine yourself as that believer under pressure in Ephesus or Smyrna or one of the early churches right at the beginning of the book and you hear all of this, God protects his people. God proclaims his truth. God will bring in his harvest. How would you walk home from church? How would you go into your week with its challenges and its pressures? Would you say, by the grace of God, I to the end will endure? Well, hopefully we will say that too. Let's pray together. We take a moment, O Lord, just in stillness to think how these things may apply to us. The great mercy of your protection of your church, the great truths that are proclaimed across the heavens and through the ages, the great prospect of your final and full harvest. Help us, O Lord, to live with our eyes fixed on what lies ahead. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.